dispatch with a 1065 missing from 154 Central Road, Wichita. Scene 12420. Last seen outside Murphy's Mead on entrance to Whitecaps Wilderness Area. Robert Hendricks, born 9 1975, 5 foot 4 inches tall, medium to solid build, brown hair. Alone, equipped for approximately two nights in the wilderness. All information regarding this case, please send to this address. I was once at a bar in East London where I met a man who told me a strange story. He was most definitely a conspiracy theorist, but that didn't bother me. I quite like arguing with conspiracy theorists anyway. I think of it as a way to sharpen my wits, to test my beliefs, and just occasionally... I might even learn something. Anyway, the strange story he had to tell involved people disappearing mysteriously in national parks in the US. Conspiracy theorists, of course, are generally fixated on the United States. It's the natural home of modern conspiracy culture. At first I wasn't impressed. I mean, of course people disappear in US national parks. They're huge. They have mountains and canyons. They have snow and storms. They have mountain lions and grizzly bears. In fact, it's difficult to think of a place with fewer ways for a person to disappear. There is surely no need to invoke any sort of weirdness, right? Well, my less sceptical friend told me that sometime prior to 2012, a former California police officer turned author named David Polides visited an unnamed national park somewhere in the States and heard a strange tale from a couple of off-duty park rangers. They told him that something strange was going on in national parks across the country, that hundreds of thousands of people were going missing in remote areas, and that the authorities and the media gave up on these cases soon after the initial excitement. They encouraged Pilates to look into this, knowing him to be an investigative author. Pilates did so, eventually finding out that this tip-off was just the top of a very weird iceberg. He found that, in fact, national park authorities didn't keep lists of people who had gone missing inside their parks. And when they did admit to having such information, they made it extremely difficult or expensive to acquire. It seemed as if they were hiding something. But what? And then David Pilates began to notice other things. According to my new friend, the policeman-turned-writer had stumbled upon a number of strange coincidences linking hundreds of these unsolved disappearances. He satisfied himself that these were cases that could not be explained by the usual suspects. Animal attacks, getting lost, murderers or kidnappers. No, he came to believe that there was something else going on. Something he could not quite put his finger on. I'm Kean, and you're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, the podcast that studies parapsychology and the unexplained to try and answer the question, why do people believe weird things? We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. On this episode, you find me driving from the Wide Atlantic Weird Cabin, where I normally record, on the way to the New Forest in Wiltshire. 
In terms of size, of course, the new forest isn't anything compared to the kinds of U.S. parks where Pallides' missing persons cases are supposed to happen. But I want to get a sense of what it's like to be somewhere just a bit remote from my dig into the phenomena. I'm drinking bad petrol station coffee as I drive, and I'm ready to get stuck into this mystery. Being alone in the forest, even here in England, can really bring home the realization that when we're alone in nature, most of us really could be just a few missteps away from disaster. Thick woods can completely hide things from us that are just a few feet away. And even someone who is experienced at being outdoors, such as a hunter or a hiker, can get themselves lost very quickly. And I can tell you from first-hand experience that only a few feet off the trail in some North American wildernesses, you can find yourself seemingly swallowed up by the trees. In 1962, six-year-old Dennis Martin was overnight camping with his dad, granddad and older brother in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. It was a trip the family had made several times before, but it was Dennis's first time joining them. They had hiked as far as a highland mountain meadow known as Spence Field, close to the famous Appalachian Trail. In the late afternoon of June 14th, little Dennis was playing hide-and-seek with his dad and a family they had made friends with at their campsite. Dennis, along with several of the other children, hid among the rocks and long grass. Dennis was intending to wait there until everyone else came out of their hiding places so he could scare them. He never came out. Concerned, his father searched the meadow for him, then ran about two miles along the trail calling his name. He found no trace of Dennis. There were various possible dangers in the area, including copperhead snakes, bears and bobcats, but not a trace of blood, nor a scrap of clothing, nor was a body ever found. It was as if little Dennis had vanished off the face of the earth. National Park Rangers then eventually the National Guard and Special Forces agents were called in as the search intensified. Their efforts were hindered by the fact that, shortly after the disappearance, a heavy rain erupted from the skies, turning the trails to mud and potentially washing away footprints, animal tracks, scents or other clues that might have helped with the search efforts. All in all, nearly 1,500 searchers scoured almost 150 square kilometres of terrain. Dennis would have turned seven years old one day after the search was called off. It remains to this day the biggest search in the history of the Smoky Mountains. In time, various odd, unsatisfying clues did appear. Strange footprints, seemingly those of a person wearing one Oxford shoe of the kind Dennis was wearing, and the other foot bare, were found but were dismissed as being too large to be those of the little boy. Famous TV psychic Gene Dixon claimed to have received a vision of Dennis's location and that he was still alive. The details she provided did not, however, lead police to any significant discoveries. An extremely strange report was provided by one Harold Key, who had also been hiking with his family in the Smokies, approximately five miles from where Dennis disappeared. Key stated that on the evening of June 14th, at a time later determined to have been within an hour of the child's vanishing, 
he heard a sickening scream come from the brush and then saw a large hairy man clad in some kind of fur garment coming out of the forest with something that might have been a small child over his shoulder at least it was the right size he later found a crudely drawn map of the forest trails exactly where the man had been standing and noticed that a car that had been parked on a nearby remote road was later gone this bizarre sighting was never explained some have interpreted the key sighting as being that of a bigfoot adding another layer of strangeness to the case and as it happens Bigfoot himself will become relevant to the story. But for the Martins, the mystery was to remain unsolved until the end of their days. I've stopped at a cafe for a cup of coffee in the new forest town of Brockenhurst while I continue my reading of David Pallides' Missing Person Cases. I wish I could say that it's an oldie, worldy British tea shop with an air of charm and mystery, but it's a Costa, and there's nothing in the least mysterious about it. Anyway, in his many, many books, David Polites collects stories such as the one you've just heard, but what exactly makes a missing person case count as an example of his supposed phenomena? Well, Polites has a number of so-called profile points, a collection of odd recurring details that he claims link these various cases. Some of them include The victim becomes separated from the rest of the group before disappearing. The victim has some sort of disability or illness. The victim disappears in a remote area near a body of water. Shortly after the disappearance, there's some sort of weather event such as a rainstorm or a snowstorm. Evidence of inexplicable missing clothing is often a feature. In cases where the victim's body is found, the cause of death is unknown. There is no evidence of hypothermia, animal attacks, drowning or any other obvious causes of death. In cases where the person is found alive, they are found in an area that had previously been searched and found empty. Invariably, they don't remember where they have been. Sometimes their sense of time is distorted and sometimes they report memories from their missing periods that are just plain weird. Now, some of these points struck me as being a little suspicious. I mean, Pallides' phenomena only affects people who get separated, so there's no witnesses to what happens. Well, that's convenient. It's also convenient that people who suffer accidents in the wild and die as a result are more likely to do so when they're on their own. It's kind of like this profile point is self-selecting for deaths that are going to sound weird or unexplained, precisely because they have no witnesses. Similarly, anyone lost or injured in a wilderness area that has large bodies of water in it as many American national parks do, has a decent possibility of coming to a sticky end in said water. Fast-moving rivers, cliffs, canyons and cold, deep pools are obvious hazards for anyone who is disorientated, stressed, sick, lost and otherwise not thinking clearly. Add to this the profile points that many victims tend to have an injury, illness or disability 
and that extreme weather events tend to be involved, and it really does begin to seem that Pallides is creating a category of disappearances that are anything but mysterious. Having said that, some of the other profile points are more interesting to me. The many cases where the victim has exhibited highly irrational behaviour, including the removal of clothing in cases where hypothermia just doesn't seem logical, is tougher to explain. People being found in areas previously declared empty, with no apparent cause of death, also strikes me as being worth a closer look. And to be blunt, some of the cases Pallides cites are genuinely puzzling. Mysterious. They have troubling elements that stick in the brain, making you feel that maybe there is something odd going on. On May 9th, 1979, the Benton Courier, an Arkansas newspaper, ran this story. Deerfield, Massachusetts. A 24-year-old former college student who is believed to have drowned last year in Lake Michigan is back home, saying he has no memory of the last 14 months of his life. Stephen Kubaki says he woke up Saturday night 40 miles from his father's house. He was the subject of an intensive search after his skis and backpack were found along the Lake Michigan shoreline south of Holland, Michigan on February 20th, 1978. They told us he slept under the ice, Kubaki's father, John, a 53-year-old retired factory worker, said Sunday. We didn't believe that. He told me he lost consciousness and he didn't remember anything till he woke up in Pittsfield. The younger Kubakai said he was lying in a meadow when he awoke Saturday. I didn't know where I was, he said. I was wearing clothes that weren't mine. I started going through a pack which I assumed was mine and I found maps. I would guess I was hitchhiking. I didn't know what the date was until I walked into town and got a newspaper. He said he turned up without warning Saturday night at an aunt's home in Great Barrington, 700 miles almost directly east from the point at which he disappeared. Kubaki, who has climbed mountains in Europe, said he had a vague theory about the blackout he says erased 14 months of his life from his memory. The only thing I can think of is what mountain climbers suffer from loss of body heat and exhaustion, he said in a telephone interview Sunday. That combination can result in a temporary loss of memory. I have some really vague feelings. I have some running shoes. I feel like I've done a lot of running. I also have a marathon t-shirt from Wisconsin. I don't know how I got it, he said. Kubaki, a history major at Hope College in Holland, Michigan, arrived home to a college degree granted him posthumously last May. He said he did not recall being under great emotional stress when he ventured out for cross-country skiing on frozen Lake Michigan. My father was going to sign over our house to me, he said. I had three courses at school and no trouble. I left a romance in Germany. There was no trouble with girls. I had a job lined up with the Holland Sentinel. He said he would call his family doctor today for a physical check. But I will definitely not see a psychiatrist, he said. Stephen Kubaki is now a psychiatrist. Some of these mysterious disappearance cases are even more mystifying for having some tantalising almost clue that seems to obfuscate as much as enlighten. 22-year-old Todd Gieb was at a cake party held at an orchard outside the tiny town of Casnovia, Michigan, population 300. 
At about midnight on June 11, 2005, Todd decided he was done and began trudging across the miles of marshy terrain that surrounded the party site amidst waist-high grass to get home. His rented room was at 291 Moon Court at Half Moon Lake, about a mile and a half from the party. Earlier that night, he had been driven to the party by a friend, and at 12.47am, Todd called this friend from his phone to say he'd had enough and was on his way home. Then, at 12.51, Todd made his final known human contact. He called the same friend again and simply said, I'm in a field. Then the phone cut out. This enigmatic sentence was to haunt searchers and researchers in the years since, as it turned out to be the last trace anyone would hear from Todd while he still lived. The friend called back. The call connected, but she heard only a mysterious blowing sound that could have been breathing or may simply have been the wind. No further successful calls were made. Some sources claim that three other calls were made to other friends before the field call, but whether they connected or if anything was said remains unreleased by police at this time. A large search and rescue team combed the area surrounding the party, the wetland and nearby lake three separate times. 1,500 people were involved and aircraft were used to scout the area from above. Nothing was found until three weeks later, on July 2nd, 2005, when Todd's body was found in Open Hall Lake, standing bolt upright in the water, with his head and shoulders sticking up above the surface of the pond like a grisly trophy. The lake had been checked already by rescue teams. They found nothing. The brother of the landowner had even been out on the lake on his boat the day before, and seen nothing unusual either. Despite the strangeness of the case, police concluded that Todd must have been drunk, decided to go swimming and then drowned. This despite the fact that he was fully clothed and still had his wallet in his pocket. Though he had been at a party, all sources questioned stated that he had not been drunk. Todd had no water in his lungs and the level of decomposition on his body implied that he had not been in the lake for the entire three weeks he was missing. Forensic pathologists agreed that he had probably died only three days before his body was found. While the blood alcohol level found in Todd's body was not particularly high, other substances found in Todd's bloodstream pointed to more sinister possibilities. Traces of two antidepressant drugs, neither of which he was known to be taking, showed up under later analysis. These two drugs are not generally used recreationally and the use of both together would not be prescribed medically. They would, however, induce confusion and possible hallucinations. In some ways what we might have here could be a potentially straightforward case of murder. Todd had been at a party where many people had seen him. Somebody could have followed him perhaps after drugging one of his drinks. Perhaps he left precisely because he didn't feel well. If someone was out to get him, they would have found it easy once he was alone and feeling sick. And yet, the detail of the phone call remains haunting. The notion of that final, meaningless statement being cut off forever leaves me with a chill. David Pilates reckons that, in fact, such a mysterious phone call is a staple of the cases he collects.
In one of his books, he states that victims of his mysterious phenomenon often make a last call that gets cut off as the battery dies. Often too in these cases, there's an element of conspiracy, which of course plays very well with the current paranormal culture. On the ground, Park's service personnel are portrayed as honest and hardworking, but their bosses are universally shown to be shady and secretive. They behave just as NASA bosses do in moon hoax conspiracies, hiding evidence, distorting truth. Mysterious FBI agents in Green Berets show up uncalled for at lowly missing persons cases. Records of missing persons are not kept or are made impossible to access, something which I do find extremely odd until I remind myself that in fact the reason it's difficult to get accurate numbers of, for example, police shootings in the US is because police departments and states operate separately and, incredibly to me, don't share this kind of data with one another. So I guess the take-home message is never ascribe to the mysterious what could be chalked down simply to incompetency. Pilates' emphasis on the conspiratorial implies that whatever is really going on is of grave importance to the deep state. But what exactly is it they're hiding? Some have stated that, in fact, Pilates does have a theory as to what might really be going on, or at least you may once have. It isn't one he's ever voiced in connection with his missing cases, however. He's always been extremely careful not to be specific and to leave the door open to whatever the reader might choose to envisage in order to plug this particular gap. Fact is, Pilates used to be something of a Bigfoot guy. His first book in 2008 was called Project Hoopa Bigfoot Encounters. He founded an organization called North American Bigfoot Search, which seems to have been active until fairly recently from what I can tell. Also, from what I can tell, he spent quite a few years not saying too much about this Bigfoot background while promoting his new idea. Perhaps he doesn't want people making the obvious connection and presuming that he believes Sasquatch is responsible for these mysterious disappearances. To me, it seems a possibility that his ideas about such fringe topics have evolved over the years, beginning with an arguably concrete phenomena and graduating to a more nebulous one, indeed one that is equally fascinating but far more difficult to prove or disprove. And with eight books and several movies now to his name, Pilates has quite the brand to protect. In his films, he wears a shirt branded with his logo as he interviews witnesses of missing people. It seems there can be no mixing of the brands, no Sasquatch in his missing persons. After all, just because someone is looking after their brand, well, that doesn't mean that they aren't genuine, true believers. Perhaps the most down-to-earth take on this phenomena is that espoused by Reddit commentator Daloahu, who states, I don't think you can blame all his collected cases on just one thing. There is no way that the same thing that captures and transports toddlers up to a mountainside is the same thing that kills a man and puts his body bobbing up and down vertically in a lake, as well as inject his body with antidepressants. Also, this same thing drained a girl of all her blood and teleported the body into a water tank? That's my only issue with Pilates. I'm not the guy who says, just admit it's Bigfoot. I'm the guy who says, stop treating over a thousand cases as if they were all done by one perpetrator. In many ways, 
This mysterious disappearance idea is similar to an earlier legend also involving missing people, that of the Bermuda Triangle. Like the Bermuda Triangle, Pylades' concept is a cluster of odd facts in search of a phenomena, a set of symptoms without a central diagnosis. Perhaps some people like this open-endedness. Perhaps it allows them to project their own personal take on the phenomenon without committing to it entirely. It also reminds me of the so-called smiley face killer, a theory that multiple drownings of young men in the American Midwest over several decades, all in different states, are connected because all of them were found with a graffiti smiley face painted somewhere within a few miles of where they were found or where they were estimated to have been dumped into the water. Except, of course, for the cases that are included where there wasn't a smiley face. But such is conspiracy thinking. What do actual search and rescue people think of the mysterious disappearance theory? On the one hand, Pallides lectures to enormous crowds of professional park service workers and experienced SNR people every year. He believes that most of them know the service is hiding some kind of big secret, even if they don't say so out loud, for fear of harming their career. I find this intriguing, though not necessarily surprising. My research across a broad cross-section of odd beliefs has made it clear to me, at least, that we are living in the age of peak conspiracy. Simply put, people right now are wired to believe in deep states. Suspicion and mistrust is like catnip at the moment. There's barely a subculture in the paranormal world that hasn't turned to this dark drug. It's a pattern that's being played out everywhere around us, from science denial to post-truth alternative facts in politics. Other outdoor professionals have noted, as I said at the beginning, that most folks just aren't used to the wilderness, and they tend to underestimate it at their peril. That really, a person alone in the wilderness is extremely likely to come to a bad end, for all kinds of reasons, and that there isn't really any reason to make it seem more mysterious than that. The cases collected here each have elements within them that are undeniably puzzling. But I personally suspect this mysterious disappearance concept to be largely a phenomenon created by statistics. Trawl through enough data, regardless of what kind, and you will start to find patterns. Us human beings are literally hardwired to do so. The need to spot connections and intentionality are crucial for our survival, part of what has made us top dogs on this planet. But it also causes us to spot patterns when there are none. It causes us to reach for conspiracies and design amidst randomness and tragedy. Like the Bermuda Triangle and like the Smiley Face Killer, Mysterious Disappearance Theory provides us with endless examples but no conclusion, no underlying theory. And while it can seem ghoulish to me, even some families of these missing persons want to believe and do indeed continue to support Pilates. It's easier to believe, after all, that maybe the government knows why your loved one died, maybe they even have some responsibility for it, than to accept that sometimes bad things just happen for no meaningful reason. And somehow, the fact that this particular belief provides no answer seems to make people take it all the more seriously. I reckon that if Pilates turned around one day and said, well, actually it's Bigfoot, people who currently support him would immediately relegate him to the fringe. This open-ended phenomenon, possessing all the fascination of true crime 
and a frisson of the mystical without committing to any crazy particular theory certainly has the potential to run on and on. Well, that about wraps up this episode. As for me, I've got to hit the dusty trail, make it back to the car in one piece, and hope that no mysterious phenomena whisks me away before I get out of the woods. You've been listening to an episode of White Atlantic Weird. I'm Kean. If you like what you hear, check us out on Twitter, where we're at Strange Ireland, or on Instagram, where we're White Atlantic Weird Podcast. Any weird stories yourself, send them in. We promise to believe them if the evidence is good. So safe home and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.